<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to the Saishin Seneca Business Brief, brought to you by SupChina. Each week, we bring you a roundup from the world of business in China from Saishin, China's authority on business and financial news, as well as interviews with Saishin Global reporters and editors. I'm Kaiser Guo from the Seneca Podcast. And I'm Ada Shen in Paris. First, a look at the week's news. Last week, the U.S. decided to delay raising punitive tariffs on $200 billion of Chinese imports, a move originally set to take effect on March 1st, after the two sides made, quote, substantial progress, unquote, in negotiations to end their trade dispute, President Donald Trump said Sunday on Twitter. U.S. officials are preparing a final trade deal that President Donald Trump and his Chinese counterpart, President Xi Jinping, could sign in weeks, people familiar with the matter told Bloomberg. The U.S. may be planning a summit between the two presidents as soon as mid-March. The planning has been complicated by Xi's need to lead China's annual National People's Congress around the same time. More on this major annual Chinese conference later in the program. Global index giant MSCI said it will increase the weighting of China mainland in its indexes by raising the inclusion factor from 5% to 20%, marking another milestone for Beijing's drive to boost Chinese stocks' global exposure. The index compiler said it would lift a cap on the free float adjusted market value of mainland to 20% from a current 5% for a number of its indexes, most notably the MSCI Emerging Markets Index. It will implement the move in three stages this year instead of the two it previously proposed, lifting the inclusion factor for large cap shares to 10% in May, 15% in August, and further to 20% in November, according to a company statement. The move comes as China's securities regulators have moved to make mainland shares more widely accessible to foreign investors over the past few years, and the market expects that up to 60 billion U.S. dollars will flow into China's mainland after the weighting change proposed by MSCI. China's response against President Trump's tariffs is hitting U.S. exporters harder than their Chinese counterparts. A new study shows it is costing the U.S. the equivalent of about $40 billion a year in lost exports. U.S. tariffs imposed on imports from China slowed shipments of the products to the U.S., according to the Institute of International Finance, but China's retaliation had a far more severe impact on U.S. exports, leading to a collapse in many of the roughly 900 categories of targeted American products. The fall in U.S. exports to China highlights the growing economic cost of the trade war and may be stimulating Trump's eagerness to strike a deal with China as he gears up 
for his re-election campaign next year. Didi Chuxing has confirmed the establishment of a joint venture with Germany's Volkswagen, the latest sign yet that ride-hailing companies and automakers have turned from competition to collaboration to better tap the Chinese commuter market. The tie-up comes as the emergence of ride-hailing platforms such as Didi and Shouqi have threatened traditional automakers, as increasing numbers of consumers have opted to share rides rather than own their own cars. The change has been a drag on Chinese auto sales, which suffered their first decline in 28 years in 2018. With its 550 million users, Didi commands over 90% of China's ride-hailing market. The company said its more than 30 million active drivers provide more than 30 million rides a day. Tech giant Huawei said that Saudi Arabia will fully embrace its next-generation 5G infrastructure technology giving it some rare good news after several months of defending itself against accusations that its gear poses national security risks. The kingdom will begin deploying the company's 5G infrastructure over the next year, becoming one of the first countries to roll out the technology, along with other countries who've made early progress such as China, Japan, and South Korea, and a handful of European states. The U.S. has led the charge in questioning the safety of Huawei's networking equipment, particularly regarding 5G technology, which promises to drastically increase both the speed and efficiency of mobile internet access. Australia and New Zealand have banned Huawei equipment outright in their upcoming 5G networks, while a growing list of other countries, including Japan and Germany, are reportedly considering such moves. Given this environment, Saudi Arabia's support was particularly welcomed in Beijing. The monarchy is looking to diversify its oil-dependent economy into other fields, and early adoption of 5G technology is seen as a way of supporting the development of a stronger digital economy. For its part, Saudi Arabia's crown prince is keen to show its range of international partners after its involvement in the murder of dissident journalist Jamal Khashoggi in October caused international revulsion. When the FBI raided Don Miller's home in rural Indiana in 2014, they'd never seen anything like it. Miller had amassed around 7,000 cultural relics from all over the world, including the skeletal remains of 500 people looted largely from Native American burial grounds. The operation was the largest single discovery of cultural property in the history of the FBI. Miller, an amateur archaeologist and a renowned scientist who helped to build the first atomic bomb, had likely acquired those items in violation of federal law and international treaties, according to the FBI. Miller died at the age of 91 in 2015, complicating the already difficult task of returning the artifacts to their legal owners. Now, part of the case has been finally resolved. In a ceremony with Chinese officials, the U.S. announced that it will return 360 cultural relics and artworks to China, including jade objects, stoneware, coins, and wood carvings dating from the Neolithic period to the Qing Dynasty. Chinese officials said this round of repatriation is the largest from the U.S. since 2009, when the two countries signed a memorandum regarding lost cultural relics. Let's turn now to some of Caixin Global's reporters for a look at the week's news. First up is Wu Gong, and he's going to tell us about a major political event happening this week in Beijing, the Lianghui. Uh, we'll start with what this is and why it matters. Later, you can look at Caixin's website or at SubChina, of course, for much more on the nitty-gritty and what actually happens, uh, the issues and all of that. But what Wu Gong is going to do is set the stage for what we need to know on a basic level. So... 
Uh, this is a meeting of the top lawmakers and a meeting of the political advisors, and it's really one of the biggest political events of the year. Uh, the legislature, the NPC, or the National People's Congress, will uh, review the government's work over the past five years, and we'll then talk about the economic and social targets for the next year. Uh, that's one of the two parts. It's called the Liaohui, which literally means the two meetings. So uh, the NPC, which we'll talk about more, and another body called the CPPCC, the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference, uh, which is, at, as the name suggests, a consultative uh, a advisory body. So Ugang, let's start with the basics. Why is this important and what can we expect? Normally, the premier will deliver a report on the government's work to about 3,000 NPC delegates on the first day, and it's televised nationally. The premier's news conference on the final day is also closely watched because he fields questions from foreign journalists. The report that Premier Li Keqiang delivered will announce China's targeted growth, domestic product growth, for the year and other figures, such as consumption, unemployment, and fiscal deficit. The ministers of various government agencies will also hold press conference during their two sessions, answering questions from journalists from home and abroad. And because many of the press conferences are live broadcast to the world, it's a chance for journalists to grill the officials with um, tough questions. And because it's uh, live, so they cannot avoid those questions. Okay, great. That is some very good background. Uh, what should we be watching, and, and, and what do you think might be covered? Yeah, I think the GDP growth target is the most widely watched figure that China's Premier Li Keqiang is expected to say during his work report on March 5th. While the yearly growth target was set at about 6.5% last year, Analysts are saying this year it could be even lower because of the economic um, you know, downturn. Institutions are predicting that the growth rate could be set at between 6% to 6.5% or about 6%. The Congress is also expected to vote on the foreign investment law, which is meant to protect the right of foreign investment in China and ensure there come fair competition. This is the result, you know, partially from the trade war, because China really want to do something uh, to show that they are making some improvements. Okay, let's step back for a minute and talk about the NPC itself. Uh, give us the basics on what it's supposed to be. Technically, it's the highest organ of uh, state power. It's uh, roughly 3,000 delegates and they meet once a year to ratify or approve policies, laws, and budget, and some government pers personnel changes. And they will serve five-year terms starting from last year. So the NPC, the National People's Congress, is, is supposed to be the highest organ, but you know how it's characterized in, in the Western media, that it, it simply you know, goes along with everything handed up to it. Uh, is that an accurate portrayal? Um, I know uh, the uh, you know NPC National People's Congress is known in the West as the rubber stamp, but in fact they do vote against some laws, like for example the first 
vote of ab abstinence is happened in 1982. Three delegates abstained from a vote for the first time, and the first no vote was cast six years later, when Taiwan delegate Huang Shunxing voted against the nomination of a chairman of a education committee. Then in 1992. Only two thirds of the legislature voted for the controversial Three Gorges Dam project. And more recently, actually, this happened very often. Hundreds of delegates vote against or abstain from voting on the work reports given by the、uh, Supreme Court or the、um, Supreme Prosecutorate, which are actually prosecutors. That's interesting. So it does at least show a trend toward a little more independence. Um, so finally, Wu Gang, tell us who the NPC deputies are and how they are chosen.、Uh, NPC deputies are not always、uh, government officials. They can come from also from the business world and other fields. But normally, the、uh, delegates, national delegates, are elected to the uh, National uh, People's Congress, mostly by provincial people's congresses, and. Themselves are elected by lower-level assemblies. Only delegates at the lowest level,、uh, the county level or、uh, you know, township level, they can be directly elected by the public. In the People's Liberation Army,、uh, they also pick some members to the Congress, National Congress. In, last year, there were two thousand nine hundred and eighty members being elected. Uh, for this five-year term Congress, but in the past year, six of them have been kicked out、uh, for corruption, you know, investigations, and three of、uh, the deputies have passed away. So we're missing nine deputies. But then,、uh, at the same time, four lawmakers have been added to the Congress. So now we we got two thousand nine hundred and seventy-five members. Well, that's a great summary, and we will check back in with you perhaps after the event. Great, thanks, Wu Gong. Thank you, Kaiser. Next up is Caixin Global reporter Mo Yelin, who covers business and particularly、uh, focuses on automotive.、Uh, Yelin, like many people、uh, in China, do you went home for Chinese New Year, and home for you is quite far away from Beijing, all the way down in Guangdong Province,、uh, and that involved, in your case, a lot of different transportation. So、uh, we wanted to hear about your whole experience on your journey home and and how you traveled. Well.、Uh As you said, I was、uh, I'm a Guangdong native, working in Beijing. Well, it has always been a torturing journey for me, traveling two thousand kilometer all the way、uh, from the north to the south. So my journey begin uh, at uh, Beijing to Guangzhou, which will take me eight hour by the fast speed train, and then. Being at Guangzhou, I will still have to travel another five hours, taking the intercity bus, and then reaching to my hometown, which is called Gaozhou.、Uh, that is four hundred kilometers away from Guangzhou, and then reaching there, I still have to take another one hour rural bus, or you can call it a、uh, coach. To my hometown, which is a remote village. So, through all all these journeys, I've exchanging transportations between high speed train, bus, 
bikes, share bikes. You can name it. Uh, even donkey, if I accept. <laughs> wow, that is fascinating. <laughs> really, a donkey part of it. Huh? Anyway, interestingly, this year, although you did have to go through quite an ordeal, the last leg of your journey, uh, it was very different than than years before. So, why was that? Well, it's been lucky. My father bought a secondhand Toyota last year. The one he had been bragging to me over phones for the last several months. So he picked me up from the bus station in Gaozhou to the village. That is thirty-five kilometers. So because of the、uh, Toyota car, that makes my journey. Uh, much relaxing this year. So Yelin, tell me about your dad and his bragging about his Toyota.、Uh, had he been planning on buying it for years and years? Was it a spontaneous purchase or or what?、Uh, give us a sense of what your dad's relationship is with his car. Well, this、uh, Toyota means a lot to him. My father had been this traditional farmer, growing tropical fruits. You know, in my hometown, it's lychee and long、uh, longyan. And also grew other things, and basically a car for him is like reaching the brightest moment of his life. And after he bought the car, he kind of become the envy of the whole village, around one thousand people. He even changed his WeChat profile with the automobile he bought. So really, all of this comes after, as you you know better than anyone.、Uh, China's auto market had been growing for what, like, practically thirty years,、uh, and it was、uh, the first year last year that we saw an actual decline.、Um, it was a decline, right?、Um, not just a slowdown in growth, but an actual decline. The figure from CAM, which is the industry body, just uh, the figure uh, shows that、uh, it is the first annual decline in twenty eight years. And the industry body also expected the downturn trend will continue this year. Even if it does continue, you argue in your piece that while it is not going to save the industry, one strategy that can help it is to target more rural areas,、uh, like you know where your father is from. Can you talk about why you encourage this strategy? I I think so because you see in China there's still six hundred million people living in the rural villages. From that point of view, at least at my village, almost everybody I'm talking to is planning to buy a car or talking about plans to buy a car, because owning a car in villages for Chinese people is still like what my father said, reaching the highest point of their life means a lot to them, and and also the government now also already realized the potential of this huge market. And they've already taking notice. Like、uh, last month, I guess they've rolled out policies. Although without clear details, they already、uh, said they will adopt incentives, maybe direct subsidies to farmers in the future. Subsidies aside, you talk in your piece about four S.、Um, This isn't a term that we know here in the car crazy U.S. Despite you know just how huge the automotive market here is,、uh, what is a 4S store? So 4S is a type of store that including sales, showrooms, services, and spare parts. For people in my village, if they want to buy the car, they will have to travel 
to the downtown city, which is about 45 kilometers away. Okay, so showroom, sales, service, and spare parts. Okay, got it. My final question, though, uh, and we won't tell your father. What was your honest opinion of the Toyota that your father bought?、Mm, it's a secondhand one, and I, I would say it's the best in my village. Well, all right. Well, that's great. I am happy for you and happy for your dad. And、uh, Yelin, we will talk to you again soon. Thank you, Kaiser. You are very welcome. And that's this week's show. Thanks for listening. The Taishin Seneca Business Brief is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Tanner Brown, with stories from the staff of Taishin Global. Thanks, of course, to Ada Shen. Special thanks to Li Xin of Taishin Global and to Spring and Autumn and Yufei for the music. Be sure to check out all the other shows about contemporary China in the expanding Seneca Network, and be sure to follow the news from China every day at SubChina. Subscribe to our newsletter at subchina.com. Take care.